0: This is Episode 7 of the 25 Stay Alive Podcast with Dr. Joe Lugans. Welcome back, everyone, to the 25 Stay Alive Podcast. I'm Hugo, and as always, I'm joined by Willie. Welcome, mate.
1: Hey, mate. It's always good. Always fantastic to be online with yourself and with some amazing people we've got on. Um, Just before we jump into the episode, we get left a lot of messages and reviews that really help us a lot, particularly on Apple Podcasts. With the way the algorithm works, uh, the better reviews, the more ratings we get, actually the higher it bumps up so we can reach more people. So we're actually going to read out some of these amazing reviews we get off yourselves. Um, so this week is brought to you by Harley Wright's BMX. Now Harley said, truly inspiring, probably the most motivational and inspiring thing I've ever heard in my life. These stories are some of the most eye-opening things and make you realize that you need to stop taking life for granted and start living it to the fullest. Every episode is worth listening to. Firstly, Harley, thank you so much for that review. And as I said previously, the ratings and reviews actually help us a lot and we love hearing from you guys. So, Hugo, what's coming up in this next episode?
0: Yeah, thanks, Willie. And thanks, Harley, mate. You're a bloody legend. And for those who haven't yet subscribed and haven't left us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, please do so. It'll take the best part of 30 seconds. But like Willie alluded to, it really helps us grow and reach as many people as we can. So look, today's episode, we talk all things positive psychology with the amazing Dr. Jo Lukens. She holds a PhD in psychology, has over 25 years experience and a breadth of knowledge in the sport, organizational and educational domains. Joe has worked with elite athletes and outstanding professionals such as Jonathan Thurston's and the North Queensland Cowboys throughout her career, and she's just about to release a book, "The Elite Think Like an Athlete, Succeed Like a Champion." So, also very excited to announce Joe as the 25 Stay Alive resident psychologist. So it's amazing to have someone of Joe's caliber and expertise join the 25 Stay Alive team. And I know today's episode might be a little bit longer than the other ones. But I can tell you right now that we literally could have spoken for another few hours, and I guarantee it that you'll take something out of today's episode. And make sure you listen right up until the end, because Joe does leave you with a couple take-home strategies to implement into your daily lives. Hello, and welcome to the 25 Stay Alive podcast, an inspiring, real, and raw conversation with Hugo and Willie to army mates and cancer survivors who are passionate in helping the lives of other young men and women Dr. Joe Lukens, welcome to the Twenty Five Style Life podcast. Thank you for having me. It's an, honor to so have you here today. Willie and I have been very excited to, to get you on the show and really pick your brains. and And Willie, mate, how's your week been?
1: Yeah, my week's been really good. I'm feeling a bit better, but yeah, it's fantastic to have Joe on the show. We've been um been waiting to get a psychologist on, and and no one's better than Joe.
0: I suppose for the for the listeners out there, what actually is. Positive psychology.
2: Yeah, positive psychology is a new arm, I guess, of psychology. Around about the 1980s, there was a professor by the name of Donald Clift, and he kind of posed the question to psychology and said, "Well, what would happen if we studied what's right with people?" Mm. Which was the moment that psychology went, "Oh, yeah, we yeah. kind of we kind of missed a whole <laughs> chunk of life there." And, and of course, things have been done over the years, but not as a an organised part of the science, I guess. So. It was quite fortuitous in terms of some of the research that was happening around that time. So, positive psychology is essentially the science of what goes well.
0: Yeah, you know, so I like it's, that. it's
2: it's looking at achievement, it's looking at success, but it's looking at things like happiness and love and kindness and post traumatic growth, mm. and you know, so what it's trying to do is understand when people are trying to function well, when people are wanting to achieve, what are some of the things that help to contribute to that and help to contribute to having a life that's satisfying and yeah. keeps us happy. It's really
1: common for people to focus on like what's going wrong, not what's going right.
2: Yeah, it is. And that seems like a
1: quite incredible thing that you're like, yeah, nah, stuff. Yeah, things go wrong, but we're just going to focus on what's going well and what's good. And then that sort of swings your your whole mental state around.
2: It, it absolutely does. And, and look, it's, it's an obvious way for people to head because people tend to have what we call a negativity bias. We do tend to scan the environment and, you know some people will say that's an evolutionary thing that we need to look after ourselves and mm. look out for the hazards and so forth. So we do have a tendency, and i'm I'm always interested when I'm working with people and they're given feedback. you know you could give people ten pieces of feedback, nine might be positive, one might be something that isn't quite yeah. right, and isn't it interesting how we always focus on that one bit. So we do, as humans, mm. tend to gravitate to the negative, and so it's really, Important that we look at the benefits of looking at life going well and, and, yeah. and how can we reframe things and think about things differently.
0: And I think you, you touched on it offline with me when you spoke about mental health. And those listening probably hear mental health and they straight out think of, you know, depression. There's also the good side of mental health.
2: Yeah, they do. And I, I guess for me, with my professional background, I'm often asked to speak on that topic. But it's interesting, every time you're asked to speak on it, the assumption is, as you say, um, it's some of those things that we, we would prefer not to be experiencing and I, and I always try to say to people look mental health isn't good or bad mental health is mental health you know and so but certainly if we want to look at how our lives can go well if we focus on those aspects then it tends to minimize the things we're trying to avoid if mm. that if that makes sense yeah, you know absolutely. like if, if you look after your wellness then by its very nature as best you can you're minimizing some of Things like anxiety and depression.
0: Growing up is is psychology or the the field of psychology always something you've you've wanted to do or wanted to get into.
2: I've always been interested in people. Um, I like to sit in coffee shops and watch people, yep. and, and I was even doing that this morning. I was I was watching all these people walking past and speculating into my head as to where they were going and what they were doing and why they were doing it. Oh,
1: don't don't we all love doing that?
2: yeah i, lo-
1: I love very, people watching
0: yeah there's there's something quite therapeutic about people watching i think
2: <laughs> well i think yeah. it is because you watch and you see all these people that you'll probably never see again yeah and you just think but they've got a whole life and a story that i'm never going to know so yeah. it, so then i just make it up yeah in <laughs> the gaps you know yeah. with
0: no
1: I, <laughs> I do that weirdly um and i actually do it more and more when i'm in the army like when i'm out in the middle of nowhere and i see like um, big, like, um Jetliners fly over the top, like seven four seven fly over, and I'm like, that's full of like three hundred people. I wonder like where they're going, what they're doing, and I sort of almost think too far. And I'm like, there's probably people in first class who are like businessmen up <laughs> there, and like, oh my god, how how they're living such a different experience right now on this planet to me, but I'll never know their story.
2: Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? And, and you don't know. Some someone's on that plane excited about where they're going. Someone's dreading where they've left or what they're doing. Yeah, it's it's interesting human experience. So. Um, in terms of how I came to be sort of where I am now, I, I, I was always interested in people mm-hmm. um, and my career aspirations as a high school student was I wanted to join the police force. That's what I was always interested yep. in and um, I grew up on the Sunshine Coast. My parents used to take me down to the police open days each year and um, I just stumbled across someone there who, who was asking me what I wanted to do and I, and I said, and and then his comment to me was, and, I, and I'm forever grateful and, we'll, again, we'll never know who that was or what his story was, but he just said to me, well, you, you really need to come in with a university qualification. He said, if you really want to maximise what you can do with your career, that's what I would recommend to you. Go to uni, get a degree and then join the police force. So that was the pathway mm-hmm. he recommended for me and I thought, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. So I went to the guidance officer at school. I said that I wanted to do psychology he looked up the QTAC book. Um, interestingly for me, he pointed out that the Bachelor of Psychology degree that I needed to do was in Townsville.
0: Okay.
2: So I packed up my bags and went to Townsville.
0: And that's where you live now. And
2: that's and it, I met my husband within a month of being in Townsville. So I went up there as a 17-year-old and I'm not 17 now. And um, I've been up there for a while. So I so did my university qualifications up there. As I said, the timing, you know, I, I'm a firm believer in serendipity. I think sometimes things just happen, happen along and we mm. and we deal with them. Well, things happen anyway, don't they? So we deal with them. So that was around the time that psychology was starting to move into positive psychology. Now, my interest at that time was in, in sport. So by my third year of university, I'd actually forgotten that I was joining the police force because yeah. I got so immersed in the psychology world. Um, so then I had an interest in sport, was able to do my honours research on children and sport. I was looking at self-esteem and why kids explain their outcomes the way they do yeah. so if a child with low self-esteem has one how do they explain it compared to a child with high self-esteem is it different and it was different so I was yeah. at the t- some of the toughest audiences in the world eight and ten year olds so yeah. I hung out, hung out with them for a year then got an academic position at the university doing some research work and some initial teaching and then it was fortunate for me that probably about two or three years later was when a new team came to town. They were called the Cowboys. Yeah, the Cowboys. Um, yeah, the Cowboys. So they didn't have a psychologist, they didn't have a psychologist in their first year. Um, so I started up with them in 1996. Graham Lowe was the coach and was wonderful for me. He gave me opportunities that I probably wouldn't have gotten in another centre So um, because I was probably the only person working in the sports psychology area at that time. So I've been with the club for, well, we're now just about to, go into our 25th season and you're, with, st-
0: you're still with them still with them wow
2: still with them yeah. so that's that's been a that's been a, an amazing opportunity and it's interesting I've often been asked you know being a, a female professional working with an elite male sporting team um, and I work with lots of other teams as well I work with the Townsville Fire which is, is another team that I love working oh, yeah. with you know what is it like being a female working in in elite male sport, and it's funny because until I was asked the question, I never really thought about that. Mm. And and I'm, I think that's full credit to the Cowboys that I've never felt that that's even been something I've ever had to consider. The only time I've ever felt different is because I'm a psychologist, not because not because I'm a female. So, but,
0: especially back then too, as well, it was probably even more unknown. Absolutely, mm.
2: and 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 I think that's why I make the point about the difference in terms of my profession because now it's fully accepted you know the expectations of young players coming in and their families is and we assume you have a, a psychologist on staff you know mm. helping players with their personal and professional development and so forth back in the 80s that wasn't what that was that was before super league you know so players that i would see i'd see them in the corridors and they'd kind of sort of nod at me slightly maybe not even say hello because psychology was a bit more taboo yeah. back then but um We've all grown up a bit since then and, and realised that what psychology can offer is an opportunity for you to be your best, mm. you know, and that's really the framework I've always come from is, is you know, if you've got someone who's travelling through life, wherever the, wherever they're at, you know, things are going well or things aren't going well, but how can we put some things in place to help people live the life they want or to feel better about their circumstances, whatever it is that they're doing.
1: Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. have you noticeable changes over those, say, 20 years in those teams and their sort of mental health outcomes?
2: Uh, yeah, look, I, I think there's lots. We, we've seen a whole range of things, but obviously one of the things that we now talk about more is some of the the challenges of being a professional athlete. Like, like many of us who aren't professional athletes look at it and go, wow, wouldn't that be a cool gig? I'd, I'd love yeah. to be a professional athlete. And look, there there isn't a professional athlete I know that don't say, yeah, this is what I want to be doing. Yeah. So there's no <laughs> there's no doubt that it's a pretty amazing experience if you get that opportunity to do it. Um, what we also know, though, is that there's a lot that comes with that. There's mm. a lot of pressure. There's a lot of expectation. You know, if you a look, lot of hard work. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of hard work. There's a lot of. It's almost like an iceberg. You know, you don't really see what mm. goes on. What you see
0: is the, the 90 minutes that your team Correct. plays, or the 80 minutes, or you know, whatever the sport is. And, and, what, and then when they play badly, you start it yelling at the TV, and it's like, how how hard is it to kick that goal? <laughs>
2: that's right. And then the players walk down the street. You know, and yeah. then depending on how it's going and how the season's going depends on how well that goes. You, yeah. know, you can't even, you know, I'm I'm from Townsville, so, you know, you can't go into Woolies and buy your groceries mm. without without you know someone knowing who you are. Yeah. You know, there's no anonymity in a in a smaller centre, and there wouldn't even be in, yeah. in, in many of the cities, I would think. So, so it's interesting that. Um, one of the things rugby league but many but most of the sports have realized is that it's a workplace mm. so you, you know like with every workplace we need to look after the well-being of um those who are around us so um it's really important to focus on that side of it in addition to so sports psychology is a lot about performance enhancement but it's also about human well-being um so looking after people and, and you know mm. often we're dealing with populations that are younger and are doing all the things that everyone else who's younger does and every now and then we make mistakes and we you know we've got to deal with those so it's putting some support mechanisms as well so people making better choices or dealing with the choices Mm. that they've made
1: and i guess now with the introduction of social media being that they're held like everything they do is now in the spotlight that's what i was going to ask about is have you seen a change in um sort of their psychology and sort of mental health with the introduction of social media so over the last 10 years yeah because Although I've grown up in a social media generation, um, I'm 23 years old. But previously to that, if they did something out on the out on the piece on the weekend or so, whatever, unless there's like a journalist there or someone yeah. writes a letter to the editor, it's not it's not out there. Mm. But with social media introduction of every phone has a camera on it, every single day you'll see some speculation in the news or, or at least. Uh, on socials, as well as everyone can have an opinion. So you see these players, they're a public figure online and they'll just cop flack all through the comments. And have you seen that as a massive influence for them? Huge influence.
2: It it really has. And you're you're right because I've I've, I've had the privilege of sort of seeing it through the 1990s when that wasn't a thing. You know, I I remember I got my first email password I think when I was yeah. in 1993 so you know it wasn't long after that so you're right certainly there wasn't that social world you weren't under the level of scrutiny that you are now there weren't the keyboard warriors that we now have that feel that they can pass comment yeah. on everything that mm. you do and you know so and people forget that these are human beings that we're dealing of with course. So The the challenge for athletes is to understand that with their right to be a professional athlete, and it is a good gig, you know, there also comes that responsibility. You know, they are role models and they, you know, I'm always saying to athletes, hang out on the back page. That's where you want to be. If you're on the front page, it really only needs to be because you've got a trophy in your hand and there's confetti. You know, like if you're on the front page, (laughs) not generally where you want to be. So where you can, you know, it's Mm. focusing on your sport and so forth. So... It, it's a tough gig being a professional athlete. There are lots of expectations on them and, and you know, some of our sports are very well paid and then others it's much more challenging. The The WNBL is a, a good example of that. It's developing as a profession, but, you know, the budget that the towns will fire on, mm. it, it pales into comparison yeah, to, say the, to say the Cowboys as two, two yeah. teams in the same city. But, again, they'll all say we love what we do. So that they're very appreciative of it.
0: No, I, I like when you touched on you said, you know, they're human too because it, it is true and, and quite often when supporters or when fans are watching them, whether it's on TV or at the game, you you almost forget that in, in a way and, and you don't realise that for them, they're reading about themselves, like Willie said, on social media and the paper and the news pretty much every day or most days. It's an interesting one with, in regards to the mental health because it seems like it's in the media a lot more with, with the athletes. Like I know at the moment, there's quite a hot topic in the AFL, for example, I'm a, a big AFL fan, but it seems like the mental health of the athletes seems to be very prevalent in the media. And is that, have you found that?
2: I think that certainly the spotlight has shifted and I think that's a good thing because I think what, what it's doing is it, like you said, acknowledging the human side of, mm. of you know, it's interesting mm. with our sporting teams and our athletes, it's almost like we feel like we have an ownership over them. Yeah. And, you know, so therefore we have a right <laughs> to tell them what to do and how to live their lives and how to play their game and all, all those sorts of things. So I do think it's been really good that, there is much more discussion about some of the challenges that people experience okay. because then if I'm watching as a, as a fan and, and I've been feeling some of those things and then I see one of my sporting idols and I go, well, okay, so it's not just me. And it's, you know, you mm. think people have these glamorous lives and then you find out that it's not that glamorous, yeah. you know? So, so I think that's, that's a good thing. And I do think that the conversations and the opportunities and, you know even with what what you two are doing here with with your podcast the messages that you you're able to get out are really really important and um you know we can all benefit from it one of the key things we know from positive psychology is that people matter so people in our lives matter so having those conversations having those connections it's really really critical
0: no absolutely And just just moving on a bit but still touching on that athlete space because i find it so fascinating that it's such an amazing um, opportunity you've had for so many years, but you would have just learned so much from the athletes and no doubt the athletes have taught you so much as well. But you've recently, uh, I suppose not reason you're about to release a book, which touches on a lot of the the, the, the psychology of athletes. Um, I suppose what makes them succeed, how they're so successful in what they do, but how your everyday person like myself or Willie uh, or people listening can utilize some of the the techniques they do to succeed as well in life. It doesn't, you don't have to be an athlete and, your book's titled The Elite, Think Like an Athlete, Succeed Like a Champion, and that's being released I understand on May 31st. It is. And um, it's, uh, it's a pretty interesting concept for a book, and, and I think just want to briefly touch on on what kind of drove you to to make release sure. that book
2: thank you and thank you for mentioning it yeah it's an exciting time for me it's certainly i this is the first book that i've written so i'm into new territory as well i'm actually having to practice a little bit of what i preach about taking on a new goal so that that's been exciting for me um so this is something that came about a couple of years ago i was invited to give a keynote address at a conference and and i chose at that time to reflect exactly as you said on what have I learnt from working with athletes? You know, the, the expectation if you come in as a, as a professional in, in, in whatever, your, whatever your discipline might be, that you're there to provide the, the information and the advice and the recommendations, which, of course, you do. But along the way, if you're wise, you learn along the way as well and you le- learn from the people that you're working with. So what I did was I reflected on what have elite athletes taught me, what have been the things that I think helps them to get to the pointy end in their sport mm. you know what helps them and 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 the good news is is that you know you don't have to look like an athlete to think like one yeah um so always well, bonus if we look like one but <laughs> you know,
0: we don't all so, um. oh, I, ser- I certainly
1: don't look like an athlete <laughs> no, me neither. i might photoshop myself too sometimes
2: <laughs> what i what i was interested to have a look at is and, and to think about a bit more was you know what is it that i've learned from working with athletes and that that's what the book aims to do mm. so it's some of those key lessons, but it's very much written in the style. It's not a book being written for elite athletes. It's been written for everyone else to think about, well, look, if you're looking to improve an aspect of your life, is there something that an elite athlete might do that you could think about doing that you know might help to shift your thinking, shift your behaviors? Um, And so that's really what, what the book's aiming to do is to explore some of those things that you know help contribute to success that we may be aware of, but maybe we don't. we don't necessarily have a strategy. so there's lots of strategy. Mm. it's sort of a I guess along the, the self-help line of booking that it's 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 not full of stories necessarily about the athletes, but it's more about, what are the lessons? And then if you want to do a bit of this, what's some handy hints on how you might be able to do it? I was reviewing some of it yesterday and thinking about, you know, there's a, there's a section in there where I was reflecting on a time when I was working with a client and I'm going to use a label here and if, if I could have put my fingers up and put inverted commas where the client was difficult. You know, it wasn't quite yes. the, it wasn't quite going the way <laughs> I wanted yeah, it to. Yeah. And I think we can <laughs> all really relate to that because maybe we've all got people in our lives that we could say, are difficult and <laughs> and but it, but you know what was the learning for me was i went to a workshop it was perfect it was called working with difficult people i'm yeah. perfect i'm going to go to this workshop and i'm going to find out how to fix this person because they're they're really not complying with the way i want it to be and i think
0: then, uh, i think i need to go to one of those because Willie can be pretty difficult
1: sometimes <laughs> ah yeah. well
2: well, well me, me and
1: Hugo need to go to couples therapy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that is way out of my expertise. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to tell you that right now.
0: Actually, we might, uh, we might keep Joe here after the podcast. And she can be yeah. counsel. <laughs>
1: this was the second part of the podcast, Joe, was, was all mine, Hugo's problems. <laughs> that might, I might save
2: that for my podcast.
0: Um, so look, Joe, mm-hmm. in the book, I, it's, it seems like a fascinating book and I love it how, like you said, you relate it to everyday people, but it's fascinating that the approach you've uh, you've come from from I guess all your years of experience, and we might just go through a couple of the chapters in the book because you did send them send them to us, and it's um, the ones that kind of stand out a lot. And I'm going to start off with one that I think both Willie and I can definitely relate to. Uh, obviously, both being through. Uh, Willie's still very much going through cancer, and I've been through two fights with cancer and. It's something that the support from your family and the support from your friends and the support from the, the community in general is huge when you go through something like cancer, for example. And so one of your chapters is called In Your Corner. And I think it's it doesn't matter if you're an elite athlete, having that support in your corner, or if you're going through cancer, even if it's something a lot smaller than that, just having someone to to be by your side going through any adversity in life or whatever. And I think that's um it's straight away when you when you sent that chapter to it really really stood out to both myself and no doubt Willie as well.
2: Yeah, so so that chapter in your corner really is about and, and I mentioned it before, you know, people matter and it's our human connections that we really go to when we go through challenging times and and you know you've both been through some incredible experiences with that and and have much that you could say about that so i think it's it's being aware of the role that people play in our corner in terms of supporting us and um you know encouraging us and at times holding the mirror up to us when we've got some a little bit of reality to face those sorts of things and that those really are the people in our corner the ones that are brave enough and care about us enough to go hey joe you really need to think about this (laughs) um so so we need even if we don't even if joe doesn't like that all the time um but you know so those those elements of it are incredibly important that the people in our lives matter it's about having gratitude for the people in our lives but it's also thinking about whose corner are you in Mm. you know so we we can be very much self-focused and say well who backs me up who Who's in my corner? Who do I go to
1: yeah, when true. I
2: need? And, and the, the thing to think about too is social support comes in so many different forms. So I've got a girlfriend and whenever anyone has a crisis in their life, she makes a lasagna and it's amazing lasagna <laughs> and it's fantastic and she just goes, well, that's just saving them having to worry about dinner. So that yeah, very practical support. I've got other friends who are really good at a cup of tea and a sit down or a glass of wine or whatever yeah. it is people who were really good that I would go to if I wanted advice yes. you know so social support mm. comes in lots of different ways so it's recognizing who's in your life mm-hmm. what kind of support they offer you and being sensible and strategic when you need support so if you don't need a lasagna don't go to that friend you know yeah. if you need to talk to someone who do, who do you ring or the other thing that that I do and, and we were talking about relationships before but this is one of the things that that my husband and I are very mindful of we both have default positions in terms of social support that are quite different. So he's really good at problem solving and working through strategies. I'm really good at listening. You know, so, you know, if he comes to me with an issue and I say, well, so how are you feeling about that? And he goes, I don't care how I'm feeling about it. I just need a solution, you know, or I might say, I don't need a solution. I just need you to listen to me. So part of our responsibility too is to let those people around us know what we need they're not mind readers and yeah. they will have a default position and it may or may not be what you need so in fairness to them if you need someone just to listen to you if you need someone to go for a walk with you if you need someone to hang out the washing whatever yes. it is tell them
1: yeah you absolutely that. you touched on there joe um with your husband being like i just want a solution and then you're you're like well i just want someone to listen to me do you and your sort of professional opinion see a difference between when you treat men and women? That men may look more for a solution to the problem, like and give me an answer how to fix this, rather than just just speaking. Or, like, do you notice a, a noticeable difference between men and women treating them?
2: I, I do notice a difference. I, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you and you hit the nail on the head as to how that difference often goes. It often, often I found working with men, they'll say, you know, I'm going through this situation. What do I need to do? Um, mm-hmm. And then with women, you often hear. You know, I'm feeling this or so forth. So definitely, you know, if if I'd kept tally of it over the years, I'm sure it would sway in exactly that, those ways. I, I'm always mindful to include both elements because I, you know, the number of times. Just because maybe men have typically been put in a situation where they have to solve problems doesn't mean they don't feel emotions. Yep. you know. And I know yep. for myself that even though I might f- be feeling some strong emotions about something, I still need a practical mm. strategy. So I, I would agree, yeah, I, I have seen a lot more of that. And, I, and whether that's socialised, I'm not, I'm not really sure why that comes about. There's lots of theories around that. But I think it's important as well to not always make the assumption that that's all that you need so you know certainly certainly even in the example that I gave there's times when I'll say to my husband you know I really need a practical solution here what am I going to do and there'll be other times when he just needs to talk about how he's feeling yeah so yeah. so they're all really important but I think you've raised a good point is that that sometimes it's quite common and, I, and often other people describe exactly the same thing like would that be your observation Willie is that how you would see?
1: At least personally, yes, because I know when I saw like professional help, like someone like yourself with a psych, I went in with the attitude of like, like I go into everything. I need a solution for me. You know, I need a solution to the problem, but the solution ended up being to talk about my emotions, yeah. if that makes sense. I went in there with like, right, what I need to do, I need to jump up and down and breathe 10 times and I'm cured um, with my mental health issues. But no, the the cure for me was to talk about it. And I think that leads into your next chapter of your book, which is embrace the suck. I sort of had to accept just to embrace the suck.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, sometimes that is the pathway forwards, isn't it? Mm. Isn't it? That there might be things that we're doing and it might be something about choosing or it might not be. So, you know, obviously, as you said, going through the time that you went through, it could be someone who is going into the gym and doing a tough session in the yep. gym. Whatever whatever the scenario might be, there's times where it starts to feel uncomfortable. Yes. And we, and we make a decision at that point in time as to whether or not we continue to engage with whatever it is. Now, sometimes we don't have that choice. Yeah. And certainly you've both had experiences where it was not of your choosing. Um, and so it was something you simply had to deal with, you know, whereas the gym example, which I gave before probably a bit of a flippant example, but, you know, you can choose yeah, to do yeah. that or not do that. But anyway, if you're doing it, and, you know, with all of your experiences in defence, even if you think back to some of your least favourite PT sessions yeah. you would have done over the years and various things that you do, there's times there where the lesson for us is how do I become comfortable being uncomfortable? Mm. You know, that, that mm. not, not that how do I push myself to the point that then I break because then I injure myself or I do something like that. Like So you've got to be smart about it. This is something I was working on with some soldiers just this week about when you're in the gym and it's hurting how do you get to that next point where you actually push through it and and you also recognize that if you're in the gym training and it's uncomfortable well wasn't that wasn't that the point that's a good thing yeah Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. so so my mantra it's not always grammatically correct but it's it's kind of the point you know if i've got up at five o'clock in the morning to go for a ride and i'm puffing well i didn't you know, I could have stayed in bed if I didn't want to yeah. go through that. So, you know, it's kind of the point I'm supposed to be up and out of breath and feeling uncomfortable. And so when you embrace it rather than try and fight it, yeah, then you move through it.
0: Like you said, whether it is an extreme example uh, or a smaller example, it's this, the concepts are the same. If you embrace that suck and go, look at the time this sucks yeah. and you embrace it and go, mm. but why am I doing it? And actually almost look at the reasons that well, what am I going to get out of it? I can either complain about it and say my life sucks and this is too hard or, like you said in the in the chapter in your book, I can simply embrace it, which I think is quite, um, quite a powerful approach to take.
2: Well, it is because what I find is people often feel really challenged when life feels out of control and unpredictable. Mm. So by embracing the suck and going, actually, how do I have some control over this? It is quite a powerful thing to be able to do. And it, as by ways of example, someone said to me the other day, I was talking to them about, about the concept and he said, do you know what, Joe." since you've said this, I've started applying this to my life, reading. He said, I struggle with reading. I don't like it, but I know that it's good for me to do. And so when I hit the point when I want to stop reading, I just go, nah, just keep pushing through. Because I guess part of the life lesson is, and I'm a big fan of reflection, is that maybe that's something else that you can do is, you know, after you've done something, say, let's go back to the gym exercise and you finish it and you do back it off for the last, 10 minutes or something like that, how do you feel after you've finished? Because if you walk away with regret, then maybe you needed to push through. And and so, you know, if you walk away with regret, then learn from it and go, okay, so next time I'm being pushed, how can I think about it differently? What can I say to myself? Can I distract myself? It was it was funny. The, the soldiers I was working with this week, one of them just suddenly started singing. Um, <laughs> there was some music on in the gym and he started singing and it was quite funny because the song was Hey Jude and I was there, so they changed it to Hey Joe. Um, so. <laughs> Then they started laughing, which taps into some of the stuff we know about yeah, discomfort and physical sure. activity, that smiling mm. is one of those things that actually enhances performance.
0: Well, I'm absolutely. And it's interesting you say that, Joe, because uh, Willie did a and a last night uh, and he's often touched on before, is that having humour is a huge part in in overcoming, I think, adversity or embracing the suck as well. And even if you've got the mm-hmm. shitter situation in the world like Willie with incurable brain cancer or if, you know, you're struggling at the gym or if you're going through a tough buddy PT session in the army and Willie often touches on it, you embrace that humour.
1: You know, dark humour is, is very prevalent in my life. <laughs> um, I think pretty much prevalent throughout through the army. But that's definitely helped me push through. Um, and sort of touching on the, in the embracing the suck. I know personally, for me, and I think most people agree with this. The most definitive moments in my life have all been moments that have, you know, um, that have challenged me either from a point of fear or, for a, or a point of um, the sort of unknown. Is for sure um, the most definitive moments, and the moments that you grow the most mm-hmm. is the stuff that sort of sucks the most. Um, and I think it's really important, especially for young men like myself, that we do continue to push that envelope. Um, I'm not saying stupid. I'm not saying go and climb Mount Everest. But if you just grab yourself in cotton wool, never do anything that scares you or that sort of pushes that envelope. And, and like you said, Joe, that doesn't have to be jumping out of a plane. That could be simply singing or, or reading. But if that is something that is unknown to you or that is fearful for you, that's when you That's when you grow. You don't grow just sitting around your room. And as well, Hugo, with your question about the humour, Humor for me has been able to put a, a light spin on things and being able for me to express really um, sort of darker thoughts, but in a lighter way. So they're saying, like, many a true word spoken in jest, you can, I could almost put forward, like, you know, this is what is happening to me, but I don't, I'm not going to make everyone else feel uncomfortable because I'm all right with it. So if they say me, if they see me joking and laughing about it, they'll be like, oh, well, Willie's accepted and he's all right with this. So it's a little bit um, for me to ease them into something because if I just walk into a room and go, "I'm I'm dying of brain cancer," people go, like, "Oh my god!" Like, yeah. yeah. but if I make a joke about it, like, oh if he's laughing about it, he must have sort of accepted it and be all right with it." So it sort of, it makes everyone else feel a bit more comfortable with it too.
0: I saw, I saw a good quote on that too, Willie, the other day, and it was, um, "It was using humour to fight my tumor. and I thought it was um, <laughs> when I saw. <laughs> I'm it, that's really that's, that's how I was Willie. So we'll, we'll touch on one final chapter um, before. There's, there's a, so many amazing chapters in the book. Um, these are just three of them. And, and at the end of this show, we will put out the details for where you can get, um, get a copy of the book. So definitely watch out for that. But the final one we'll touch on as far as the book goes is uh, its success on autopilot. Um, and that's an interesting one because it's, um, it's basically, and correct me if I'm wrong, all to do with habit and the power of habit. Uh, and basically, we've got so many habits, and some are good habits, some are bad habits. And I suppose it's it's uh, quite often we are on autopilot. And you, you, you've touched on touched on before how we have, you know, between 30 and 40,000 decisions a day, and we, we don't even know we're doing it. And so I suppose it's interesting, because looking at it in terms of a psychology standpoint of how we can break a bad habit. And I suppose if we can diagnose that habit, and what habit you want to change then we can prove that going forward so it's not just about good habits it's also also about bad habits so you just want to touch on that kind of success um, on the pilot chapter
1: i'm just going to jump in quickly and not only breaking a bad habit joe but actually recognizing what is a good habit and what is a bad habit mm-hmm. because i might be doing things in my life that i don't even recognize a bad but yeah. aren't, aren't good for me
2: absolutely and, and i think by adding that in you've you've lead into probably one of the most important things about our habits is to be mindful, mm. is to, to is to recognise what we do because as you said, we do. We make around thirty 000 to forty thousand decisions every day. So if you've ever wondered why you're tired by the end of the day, that's why. Yeah. So, so we all deserve to be exhausted and flipping yeah. through mindlessly through Netflix or whatever it is by the end of the day because we're tired. Yeah. And of course the brain can't really focus on you know, consciously dealing with 30 to 40,000 things, you know, you just can't do that. So what happens is the brain's amazing. What it does is it, it shortcuts things for yeah. us. So it goes, okay, so there's some things that we do every day and, and it's thought to be around 40% of what we do every day is habit. So even if you think about whatever it is that you've done so far today, at whatever point in the day that you're listening to this podcast, but if you've got up, probably your morning routine is pretty similar so if you know so it might be about maybe it's about getting up and doing some physical activity maybe it's about getting up and doing some meditation maybe it's about getting up and taking the dog for a walk maybe it's about rolling out of bed and
0: clicking snooze on your alarm
2: clicking snooze on your (laughs) alarm that is
1: definitely making a smoothie
2: That, that that's right so so you know and and all of those things breakfast brushing your teeth getting ready for your day getting into your car you know you put Think about the last time you drove your car and you put your seatbelt on.
0: Yeah.
2: You know, did you sit there and go, now, how will I do this? Will I reach across with the left arm? Will I, yeah. will I do this? Will, you know, like yeah. we truly <laughs> don't have enough space in our brains yeah. to cope with all of that stuff. So what we do is we create habits and I always say to people that habits are great because they save you from having to think and I also say habits are terrible because they save you from having to think. So it taps exactly into really Mm. what you're saying is we have lots of habits and some of them for us. And what I try to do and I I, I try to put a slightly different spin on it rather than trying to define them as good or bad because I think then what happens is then if you do a bad habit and you feel bad and then you feel guilt. Yeah, of course. And if ever Mm. there was a waste of time, it's guilt. You know, it's just one of those emotions that just makes us feel terrible. So, maybe a new way to think about it and for those listening can think about this is to think about your habits in terms of for you what's helpful what's unhelpful yeah you know, so some some habits are going to be helpful for you, and if you even think of it as long a continuum, you know like there's some really helpful things that you can do like you can do physical activity and you can eat some decent food and you can drink some water and get some sleep and do all those things that would put probably right up the end of the really helpful stuff and then we can do a whole range of other things that you know, and whilst they might be fun from time to time, they probably go further down the unhelpful yeah. list, you know. So it's really about making a decision about your life. Everything we do has a consequence. So it's really thinking about, well, in terms of me and my life right now, what is the consequence of my behavior? And how's that working for me? You know, so it's less about putting judgment on the habits and it's more about thinking about how's it working for me and, you know, how's it going to work for me in the long term? So I'm always saying with habits, what you do every day matters more than what you do every once in a while. So I always remember working with a dietitian once and dietetics is not my expertise, but I always remember her saying, let's just look at the three main meals of the day, breakfast, lunch and dinner. And let's see if across the week you can get six of each of them right. You know, so you have yeah. six pretty good breakfasts, six pretty good lunches, six pretty good dinners. Well, that gives you space to have a treat for breakfast one day. You know, so I, I must say I looked at the menu today because I'm not I'm not in my hometown, so I did look at the blueberry pancakes. So I didn't have them today, <laughs> but but Sunday will we- <laughs> and i think i'll have i'll think i think i'll make that my treat breakfast on sunday i'll do something you know that i wouldn't typically do because it doesn't matter if i just do it on sunday yeah because most mornings i have porridge Mm. you know so what you do every day matters more than what you do every once in a while so if every once in a while you have a blowout with whatever it is food drink you know big night out whatever it is and if you do that you know well most days you don't do that so you know it's it's about I, i just think that we can put a lot of Pressure on ourselves and unnecessary guilt, and life's too short for guilt. Mm. We also need to be behaving appropriately, obviously. You know, so it doesn't, this doesn't give everyone free reign to go and do whatever they want. Remember what I said: is what you do every day matters more than what you do every, every once in a so, while. So,
0: for those listening, then John, they're just sitting there driving their car, that they doing the weeds, and listening to this podcast, or yep. or at the gym or whatever, um, and they're sitting there going. I've got a I've got a couple of bad habits, or I've got mm-hmm. this thing that I hate when I do this, or I hate when it, it doesn't sure. have to be something like, say, smoking, but it could be something like for for myself. I look at it and go, one bad habit I have is I find I always have to have something in my hands, and usually it's my phone. Yeah. So, like if I'm sitting on the couch or something, I'm, I seem to always be on my phone, or I'm at the out, out for breakfast, and I always seem to to want to check my phone or check your social media, and sometimes I'm not I'm not even doing anything. I'm just almost habit. Going on, on my phone, for example, that's something that I, it's a bad habit in my opinion, but it's something that, like you said, putting on your seatbelt. But for me, it's kind of, if I'm sitting there, I just grab my phone, I have a scroll through Instagram or I have a scroll through this. And it's kind of like, it's something that I've identified that. But then those listening who have a similar habit and we've all got them, but they might want to change that. Yeah. what's the, the little ways you can kind of go about in, in breaking that
2: well first of all notice that that's what you're doing so well done for having yeah. having the mindfulness to go oh i've just noticed that i do that probably yeah. more than i want to yeah. okay so so then what you do is you go okay so if i if i want to change that if i want it to be different what do i want it to look like so it might be about it might not be saying well i can never have my phone in my hand because that's not going to work but maybe it might be about saying you know what when it comes to I'm going to make this suggestion, sitting in a coffee shop with my partner. Yep. I'm not going to be on my phone because yeah. that's kind of a bit rude. Yes. Okay? So, if you know, if your partner looks up and all they can see is the top of your head because you're looking at your phone, then I would suggest you've got something better you could be looking at. So, yes. So it might be about going, okay, so maybe when I go to a coffee shop, the rule is, the you know, the phone isn't on the table or something like that. So for me, I normally would have a bag with me so that makes it easy. I can put put it into the bag or leave it in the glove box yep. or, or whatever it is. So first of all, you've, you've got to think about what's the new behaviour going to be look, look yeah. like. So it might be when I sit down at the coffee shop, then I put the phone in my pocket or then I put my phone to airplane mode or something like mm. that. One of the things I did because I I had a similar thing recently where I thought, gee, I spend a lot of time on social media when I don't need to. Yeah. And what the, <laughs> the trigger point for me was someone said, and I, and I know that I think it's just a standard part of the phones now, but oh. someone said, you can download an app that records how much time you spend on stuff on your phone. Oh, the
0: screen time! Oh, yeah.
2: yeah. So, so before
1: that, but there was an <laughs> that's app. That's scary. That app, though, because I've looked at that. I've been like, oh my god, like,
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: it's hours and hours a day, and you realise how bad it is.
2: That's it is. that's right. And so, but it was interesting. So I, I immediately reached for my phone and went to download the app, and I thought, hang on a sec. If I need to download an app that tells me how much time I'm spending on social media. I'm spending too much time on social media. I don't actually need the app. So then what I did was I took all my social media apps on my phone, put them into a folder because there are times when I can productively use my time. If I'm waiting at the bus stop waiting for my kids to arrive from school, there's 15 minutes there. That's actually a productive time for me to do some social media stuff. So that's actually, so it's not like I don't want it on my phone, but I want to be more mindful about Mm. my practice with it. So what I've actually done on my phone is I've put all of the apps into a folder on my phone at the back of my phone so it's on the last possible page uh, uh, yeah. so i've now made it a very conscious effort like for I me like to that. get to my like it's not you know you know how you often put them in the bottom so of my, phone.
0: mine are at my bottom at the moment i think i've got uh yeah facebook instagram yeah uh, whatsapp mess- um, facebook messenger
2: <laughs> so i've done yeah. so, so what i've done is moved all mine to a folder in the back and i've relabeled the folder and i've and i've called it really with a question mark oh, I like that and just by the very fact that i have to press on you know and I, that's like i'm posing myself a questionnaire like really you know that's <laughs> so that's, that's the tone i read it in and so what yeah. it does is and then sometimes i go yeah really i've got 10 minutes you know so i have this funny little conversation with myself about you know it, what it's done is it's made that habit more thoughtful Ah, oh, look at that
0: i've just i've just for those listening i've just created a folder called really so i um <laughs> wow. i'm sure my partner amber is going to be thrilled with that she now, will so. be thrilled
1: she will be thrilled
0: <laughs> are there any habits you have willie that you uh at least make a bit made aware of
1: i think there's some you recognize with yourself that can actually harm other people is sort of not taking responsibility for things um and i've sort of changed in the last few years of taking responsibility for everything i do that it is me who's done it i think it's it's probably generational as well i'll put that in my generation, everyone's a victim of something else happening to them and to shift the blame very quickly. Um, and I found I was sort of doing that to a degree of like, oh, this this wasn't my fault. Well, no, like it's me. Take responsibility for that action. Um, and that sort of changed a massive outlook on my life. And But then it was also like... I sort of was like, well, I'm going if I'm taking responsibility for this. People should actually take responsibility for themselves, and almost being a bit more of a savage. And I know, and this will sort of lead into my next um, question for you, Joe. I know for a lot of young men like myself, um, the most outspoken, at least psychologist professor Jordan Peterson, who I'm sure you know, mm-hmm. he's had you know a couple of best selling or a best selling mm-hmm. book, and a lot of a lot of young men sort of look look to him for I guess some almost reassurance. Mm-hmm. But he talks a lot about. Um, exposing yourself to things that challenge you, but also taking responsibility for your actions. Mm. Um, and I think that's really, for me as a young man, was like you know a lot of some of what he does, uh, um, people agree or disagree with. But I think as far as taking responsibility for things, for me, has had a profound effect. Do you see that as well? That once you start really, well, once people you are treating start really taking responsibility for what they have done, what they do, that that helps them sort of accept it and move move forward through their issues.
2: Oh, absolutely. And I think what you've tapped into, there's a couple of things that you've said there that I wanted to jump in on because you made so many great points there, is that that notion of responsibility is part of the story that we tell ourselves. So I'm always talking to people about the fact that we are constantly telling ourselves two things, facts and stories. So the fact is that today is the day that it is. You know, the story is about how I'm feeling about things or who I am or, or, or those sorts of things. And, and you're right, the notion of responsibility is a story that we tell ourselves. The other stories we can tell ourselves that are less helpful, and there's that, there's that um, lens to view yeah. to view it again, <laughs> is, you know, if we're telling ourselves that we're a victim, Or if we're telling ourselves that you're a villain, you know, that this has happened to me and it's, you know, all those stories feed into exactly what you're saying, not taking responsibility. You know, there's nothing I can do about it. You know, I have no control. Sometimes that might be a factual thing, but but often it's not. You know, often it's about us not taking responsibility. So I think, again, that noticing the stories you tell yourself and knowing that just because I think it doesn't necessarily mean that it's true is a, a challenge that we can put to ourselves. That's a mantra that I've I've always used, and I and I use it for myself if I catch myself getting caught up in my own negative self-talk, which is, you know, we're all vulnerable to it. So sometimes I'll I'll hear myself say something and then go, you know what, Joe, just because you thought that, that doesn't mean that's true. Do you really want to buy into it? And it's interesting. My husband has a background in in finance and accounting and so forth. So I often use the investment analogy, you know, how much do you want to invest in this train of thought that you're going down right mm-hmm. now? You know, is it, is it, is it going to be helpful for you? Is it going to work for you? Or do you need to kind of rejig it and think about it in a slightly different way
0: no i like that no, it really resonates with me. just because you think it doesn't mean it's true uh, and mm. i think that's so so prevalent because the mind can be so powerful and if it if you do keep consciously thinking of things that doesn't always mean it's true and i think um another thing i took from you offline as well you said people don't spend enough time on what they do well And I think that's so true. A lot of time, we're talking about bad habits right now and fixing this and fixing that. And just because you think it doesn't mean it's true and that type of thing. But at the same time, I'm sure those listening right now, there's a lot you do well as well. It's
2: interesting because if we bring it back to the sporting analogy, is that if you watch a sporting team after, you know, like a professional team after the weekend and they've just played their game of whatever it was, and let's say they've won. They'll often have a team meeting within sort of 24, 48 hours of that, and they'll talk about it. And they'll sort of sit down and they'll go, okay, well, that was good. We did this and this and this. Yep, okay, great. All right, let's start thinking about next week and then start moving towards next week. If they lost, you know, make yourself a big cup of coffee, because this meeting's gonna go for a <laughs> while. It's interesting how <laughs> we do tend to a bit that bit like that negativity bias I was talking about before, is we do have a tendency to dwell on the negative we see it we want to we want to fix it and all those sorts of things which isn't you know we always want to grow from from what we're doing but if we don't stop and reflect on what we're doing well how are we going to keep doing it you know i i i I actually have um another chapter in the book that looks at that that you know we each have within us and you can look at through the framework of a recipe or a blueprint or you know whatever whatever takes your fancy there but there are things that you do that helps you to function well mm. and it can be little stuff, you know, little stuff which is big stuff like get enough sleep and drink water and do all those sorts of things and it can be little things like for one of me, one of the things for me is the bookmark in my book next to my bed is moving through the week Yeah, because that means that I've been reading a couple of pages at night which means I've gone to bed early enough to give myself permission to read the book which means mm-hmm. I wasn't sitting at my computer.
0: Which is a success
2: for you. Which is a success for me. So if <laughs> I don't know that then and I don't pay attention to it, you know, then all I do is, you know, we certainly need to see what isn't working for us and how can we improve. It's really, really important to do that. It's really important to reflect on what you do well and I really hope that that might be something that people listening to the podcast can think about and reflect on and maybe even if it's on their mind now, even temporarily stop the podcast for a minute. Write three things down that you do well. Absolutely. Reflect on those things because those are the things that make you feel good about who you are and then if you know what you do well, you can keep doing them.
1: I was, I was thinking there there was a bit of a pause of like I was thinking oh yeah what do I do well, I would have pa- paused the podcast as well <laughs> uh,
2: very good very good well you can't pause, pause the podcast because you're in it so you have to do it when we're finished
1: <laughs> yeah for sure
0: um and also I love that it's slightly but kind of a um once again I've got I've got heap of these things I want to get your thoughts on but the optimism versus pessimism piece and mm-hmm. I think it's an interesting one because um and uh for those listening i did have a presentation from joe for my my work in the army a couple of weeks ago in sydney um she was the keynote speaker there and i was fortunate enough to, to listen to her presentation i was sitting there sitting there frantically writing down all these notes because a lot <laughs> of it really jumped out at me but one of them was you um you stood in the front of the audience and you had optimism versus pessimism and it's a it's an interesting one because you said look there's Depending on where you are, no one likes an extremely pessimistic person, but then no one likes an overly optimistic person. And it's kind of finding that fine line. And you, you mentioned the cautious optimism. And but I just want to touch on that kind of sure. train of thought.
2: Sure. So optimism and pessimism is something that's really come through since positive psychology has come about. Um, and what we know about optimism and pessimism is it's, it's, it's a habit. It's a habit of thinking. So we have a tendency to gravitate down, you know, view the world through a similar lens. So I often say to people, don't think of optimism and pessimism as being two separate things and you're one or the other. Think about it happening by degree. So think of it happening along a continuum. So like you said, that's why when I was giving the presentation, I actually moved around the room because I was showing that, you know, you can be right up one end of the optimism scale and right down the other end of the pessimism. And if and if you're still sort of struggling with the concept of it, you know, if you go back to your childhood days, think of the optimists as being the tiggers of the world and think of the of the pessimists as being the eeyores. Yeah. So most people know those characters <laughs> quite well. And we know that, you know, Eeyore's a lovable character and I've seen a lot written recently about one of the lovely things, I'm going to digress slightly here, but one of the things that we love about Eeyore who, you know, probably has some depression there. I mean, yeah, that's probably pretty evident there. But do you know what? Eeyore's friends surround him. So it comes back to that message of people matter. Yep. Um. So, you know, but if we come back to the, what I was saying is that you've got, pe- you know, the pessimists, the Eeyores down one end, you've got the Tiggers up the other end. And what consistently the research tells us is that the way you think matters. So when you choose to think in a way that's more optimistic and helpful, what the research supports is that that's generally beneficial for you. It's helpful for you in terms of your health, your study, your work, your relationships, you know, all of the the facets of life um receive benefit from when we think about the world in a more helpful optimistic way you know something crappy has just happened but you know what i'm going to find a way to get through this and i know that i can do it and yeah i wish it hadn't happened that way but i'm going to find a way you know that's a more optimistic way to think about when something comes along so it doesn't stop us by any stretch of the imagination of experiencing some of life's challenges at all but what it does is it equips us when we do with some strategies to get through it in a way that is better um, you mentioned the part about, you know, can you have too much? And, I again, I'm calling on a lot of um, uh, childhood fables here, but I think the Goldilocks approach is right here, is that you can have too much and you can have too little. So if you've ever spent, you know, think about the people in your life who perhaps are a little more eorish ish yeah. um, as lovable as they might be, they're exhausting, you know. Yeah. Like if you, you spent you know, mood is contagious. Yeah. So if you hang around and spend a lot of time with people that just always find the, the negativity, you know, <laughs> every silver lining has a cloud. You know, if, if everything's sort of you know doom and gloom, then that's fatiguing over time. It's contagious. It it's is. contagious in your workplace. It's contagious in your relationships. In you know your family, your
1: absolutely you know, all those sorts of things. It's a, it's a bit of almost your yin and yang, isn't it?
2: it? It is. It is, and it's and 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 with optimism itself too. You you know, we we'll all know that one person that you know is just. Bouncing off life all of the time, and they're a bit fatiguing as well.
1: <laughs> too optimistic. Oh, they're so fatiguing. <laughs>
2: well, and, and and I guess the thing is, what you said is, it's, it's about finding that balance on the optimism pessimism continuum. Because certainly, mm. you can be too optimistic. So, if and and when you can be too optimistic is generally in a situation where there is a high level of risk. So, if you look around our country over the last couple of weeks weather has featured quite prominently, whether it's been fires in Tasmania, yep. whether it's been the flooding in Townsville, which is where I'm from. Absolutely. You know, we're currently dealing with some fairly significant um, cyclones yes, around the yep. region. You know, there's mm-hmm. been dust storms, there's been the horrendous things that have happened to the farmers. You know, there's been a whole range of experiences there. So if you were dealing with any of those situations and you were overly optimistic, then it's going to go pear shaped, mm. you know. So, if there's a high level of risk in a situation, it's the same with I'm a big advocate for sun safety because I've had two melanomas. Okay. So, for me, if I look at a mole on my body and go, Oh, I think that's changed, then I go, Oh, she'll be right. You know, that's not yeah, very. Yeah. that's not very smart. Yeah. You know, what, what my, my strategy is to go to my GP and go, Oh, that mole's changed. And the GP, my GP, is beautiful, she goes, Oh, I don't like moles. I go, I don't like them either. She goes, Right, <laughs> let's, let's get that looked at. You do the biopsy. And then they go, right, you'll get the results in two days. And that's where, as best you can, you employ the optimism.
0: And that's true. Obviously, in this, this podcast, we touched on a lot of health. Yeah. That Those listening, yeah, it's great to be optimistic. And you don't want to be too optimistic at all when it comes to your health. And I like to say, I actually prefer being more of a hypochondriac to a certain degree. Obviously, what I've personally been through, but I'd rather go to the doctor and find something then to be told, you know what, You know, you've got a clean bill of health. Um, for that chance that if you do put something off and you are too optimistic that oh you know what this mole on my bloody chest or whatever it's nothing and yeah. all of a sudden you know six months time you've got melanoma and it's, it's absolutely you know, it's spread.
2: absolutely so i I, yeah. I agree i think what it's always risk assessment which and you too with your military background know yeah. that better than anyone you know that you've got to appraise the situation and go okay so let's say i'm optimistic here if i'm wrong. What's going to be the consequence? So if, mm-hmm. it's, if it's a mole changing, then it's dire, so let's not go. She'll be right. But if I'm about to try out to be in a local community production and I'm going to put myself mm-hmm. out there, take a risk and, you know, have a go at that and be optimistic that I might get in and I don't, well, you know what, I reckon the birds are still going to be in the trees tomorrow and the sun's still going to come up. So, you know, I can be optimistic there and go I'll have a crack because the consequences aren't dire if I'm wrong. So if we're in an achievement-related situation, if you're having a go at something, if you're about to walk into a test, you know, there's no point in going, oh, this is going to be terrible and awful and I'm going to stuff this up because it's too late now. So you might as well go in and go, I'm going to go in and give it my best crack. Yeah. You know, so if you're in Mm -hmm. an achievement-related situation, optimism is... It's your go-to. If there's a high level of risk, I use the phrasing. You said hypochondria, which, I, you know, I get that with the health <laughs> stuff. I do it myself too. And I also think about cautious optimism. Yes. So I went through Cyclone Yasi in Townsville. I was there for that as well um and at that time you know we're all battening down the hatches literally if i'd run around with you know the chicken little approach it would have just caused panic for the kids and i would have felt terrible so what i had to do was be cautiously optimistic and the and the foundation of optimism is hope and i think that's what we have to hang on to is we have to hang on to i hope this will go okay i'm sure that it will but you know what i'm still going to tape up the windows and move the furniture inside you know so it's that it's finding that balance and it's always about assessing the consequences of whatever. Situation.
1: And I find myself saying that a lot with sort of when people talk about um, like my health. I always say I'm optimistic yet realistic. Like I'm realistic about you know the medical facts of what's happening. Like I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that I'll live till 120, but I'm realistic of well I might not. If I don't actually do this treatment and whatever, so to sort of accept the realism of things as well for me has, has helped a lot because I am an incredibly optimistic person. Yeah, but if I was too optimistic, I would have gone up. Ah, this is not going to kill me. I'm not going to get any treatment. And move on.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> so, so you've taken the wise amen. path there, and I think the other thing that's evident, Willie, just in the time I've been chatting to you, is that you that notion of hope there is really evident in you when you talk. So and I mean, and that is the foundation of of optimism. That when we lose hope, we lose we lose that ability to, to view that. So I think like you say, being realistic about it and ho- and hopeful and optimistic at the same time sounds like a really good combination.
1: I remember um, the biggest moment of that as far as a short moment that I had of like um, optimism versus sort of realism and pessimism was my first ever solo skydive. I'm sitting in the plane and I'm like, there's two ways this can, this can go. Either I'm going to die in the next five <laughs> minutes and it's over anyway, I'm not going to remember. Or <laughs> This is going to be epic. There's no like, there's no in between with skydiving. <laughs> no one gets injured. It's like either life or death. It's either the best thing ever or the worst thing ever. And I was like, I had to sort of sit there, like literally, as I'm about to jump out the door, being like, "Well, it's fucking too late now." Like, <laughs> just like, this—the real, the realistic point of this is, I'm going out this door. So, fuck it, it's too late to be pessimistic. <laughs> I've got to open up my parachute at some point. Yeah. Um, that's almost awesome, isn't it? put that back into life. You know, you, you at some point have to, you know, almost put that ripcord and, you know, make sure that you are positive about it.
2: Absolutely. And and the other thing you've tapped into there, and gee, skydiving is the perfect example of it, is that at that point when you're sitting in the plane, if someone had put a heart rate monitor on you and all the other devices, they would have been going off. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so there's, there's no doubt there would have been elevation and everything. Pupils would have been dilated. You would have been sweating. Your heart would have been pounding. The thing we wouldn't have known from the physiological data is how you were feeling. yes yeah, and true. what you, it sounds mm. like, you, I imagine, Willie, really you were probably fluctuating between, you know, the, the enormity of what you were doing and, and the pure exhilaration of what you're doing. But what, one of the things mm. that's interesting, and, and we see this in sport, and, and we all see it in our lives, is that physiologically, anxiety and excitement are the same thing. You know, if you put a monitor, yeah. I always give the example of one of my one of my kids and I going on the, the giant drop at Movie World. You know. And he'd been waiting years because he's got an older brother who was taller and my poor little one had gone to all these theme parks never been never allowed done. to go on stuff because he was never. too short. One year then he was tall enough. And w- I-, I was reflecting standing in the line, the two of us were in the line. And I thought, if you put physiological monitors on us right now, you would not know the difference. Yep. But I can assure you, someone was having the best day of their life, and it was not me. You know. So <laughs> at that point, I used to—I don't know what ever happened. I used to be a roller coaster it, it's, fiend. I used to love it. But it's then, it's I funny don't know. What it's happened.
0: funny you say that. I've done that—that uh, that giant drop in Gold Coast. But when I did it, I at least you had someone to go with. I was with all my family, and at first we we're all going to go on it. Then a couple of my mum and dad dropped out. I think you know it's a bit too high. As as we got, and then my sort of my brother dropped out, and he said, "No, nah, you know it's too high." And then. I was with my sister and I walked all do it together and we kind of got closer and closer. Then she dropped out and then I was the only one on it. And then next to me was, would have barely met the height requirements, a, a, a young boy who was probably up to my buddy waist or something and he's sitting there and it, his sheer excitement and I'm sitting there just shitting myself. But Absolutely. I'm by myself watching my family didn't even want to go on it with me.
2: <laughs> Maybe that was us and I was on the other side.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I think doubt and commitment comes into that a lot. Like say, for my example, standing on the door about to about jump out, even if there is some doubt in your mind, you've you've committed. It's too late. It's too late to be to be doubting yourself. You've you've already committed. You're too far in.
2: You actually had some decision making to do too. The difference yeah. with Hugo and I with our example is we were just passengers on a on a very safe on a very yeah. safe ride. Whereas you actually had to do some decision making as well. So it was really important that you managed to control the emotions around what you were doing because at some point you had to remember to, you know, pull the cord and all the rest of it. So I think we've got into a really important point there that when when you've got to be making decisions in these moments, that's when you really need to try and keep your head clear by keeping those emotions in check.
1: Yeah.
0: Absolutely. I've just got a couple little more things I'd love to touch on. Um, and I suppose as well for, for those listening, almost maybe to take homes. Mm-hmm. And I know there was one that um, that you mentioned during this this conference and it really, once again, I, I loved it. And it was um, that when then planning, that when then planning, and, and you kind of described it as the secret bullet uh, for more effective goal setting. And so I guess you once again, piggybacking New behavior to existing behavior. Yeah. Um, could you just yeah. yeah? I guess for the listeners to maybe while they're yeah listening to this, they can almost try to take something away. Yeah.
2: So so and in fact, this is a good reason for them to listen to the podcast twice because I've already used some when then planning in the
0: podcast, which oh. I, I just
2: didn't articulate. There that you that's, go. That's what we were doing.
0: <laughs> oh, Jesus. So, your so, behind closed doors, she's reading our minds. <laughs> yeah. We we uh, we planned that, so, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, we did
2: plan that. So yeah, one hundred percent. I wasn't sure if we were going to get to it, so I was just going to do the suggestion. So. So this comes back to habits and um, we we have lots of when-thens in place because what happens is humans tend to work off contingencies. When I find myself in this situation, then I do this. So, for example, we said a few things, you know, when the alarm goes off in the morning, then I tend to hit snooze or yep. um, when I get up in the morning, then I go and do my meditation or, you know, whatever it might be. When I get into the car, then I put the seatbelt on. So humans work off contingencies all the time. We One thing happens and then the next thing happens. And that's how we actually build the habits. The so things that you do every day happen in a sequence and something triggers it. So one of the th- one of the challenges is that if you want to change a habit, so if we wanted to change a habit and we wanted to take take a multivitamin, say yep. say or you know you've got medication or whatever whatever it is, but you're a bit hit and miss with it. You kind of do it, but you don't do it, and then then you remember it sometimes. So one of the things that you can do is think about something that you do every day. So the example for me, I'll stick with the multivitamin example because this was one I used a few years ago. I normally in the morning have a cup of tea. So I thought, well, I do that every day, but I'm really hit and miss with the multivitamins. So how can I? And then I use the when then strategy. And yeah. you, you said it, it's about piggybacking. So what you do is you take the new behavior and piggyback it to the existing behavior. So if I have a cup of tea every day, if I'm, yeah. you can set your clock by me. If it, you know, seven fifteen, that's what I'm doing. So what I had to say to myself beforehand is, when I put the kettle on, then I grab the multivitamins. And what that means is because, because I'm having the cup of tea every day, what I do is I then associate turning on the kettle with having the multivitamin. And what actually happens is lots of research has been done on this particularly looking at neural activity about what happens if we put a when then in place. So it means that when, when I do put the, the, the kettle away. on, straight up, the thought will come there. Yep. Now, does it guarantee I will do the behaviour? No. It's dependent on how much do I really we want to want do yet. it but the biggest challenge with it is that often we forget because what would i say before it's 30 to 40,000 yes, decisions every yep. day so i to give you an example i did this with a uh, a group that i was working with it was a group of soldiers and i used when then planning around flossing your teeth because yeah. flossing your teeth is one of those things we all know it's good for us. Uh, I and always the, forget. And the, and, the, and yeah. the, exactly yeah. what you said, I always forget. But it's funny because if we all sat here and had a discussion about flossing your teeth, we'd say all the good reasons why we know we're supposed to do it, and about 11% of the population do. Yeah. So it's that. what that tells us is it's not enough to know it. It's important to know it, but... Having good information isn't necessarily enough to make us do good yes, behaviours, yep. because otherwise we would have a population that doesn't smoke, gets plenty of sleep, stays off our social media, you know, eats well, all those things that we need to do. Because what you know, and f- we, just, we just really uh,
1: fucking boring, though. <laughs> <laughs> only good decisions.
2: <laughs> true, true. Um, so. So what we do with the when then strategy, and and so what with the group that I did it with, I did it around flossing, and I, I recounted a time when I kept getting pulled up by the dental hygienist because I wasn't flossing. We've all been there. We've I all think. been there. <laughs> we've all tra- travelled down Gilt Street when we've you know come home and then we've done it for three days and then we. Why, why,
0: why is it when you think when you're about to go to the dentist you think that the day before if you just brush your teeth at extra five minutes or you floss you think magically it's gonna be it's all yeah. good in that day. Those
2: poor dentists and hygienists—they have to put put up with our our poor behaviours, don't they? Yeah. So so what I did was a couple of years ago, and and I was giving this example to a group. So you know. When I have a toothbrush in my hand, then I reach for the dental floss. So what I did was I paired something I was doing every day. Thankfully, I I could say that I was brushing my teeth every day. I paired that with the flossing. Flossing, And so I went instantly from, and it's interesting, went from not flossing to flossing twice a day because I brush my teeth twice a day. The other thing I should add coming back to my previous story is it's now physically impossible for me to turn a kettle on. And not think about my multivitamins. Uh, I love it. Now, so you know, so that but I mean that's a that's a curse I'm prepared to live with. The interesting thing, if I can just say one more thing about the flossing, is so I gave this as an example to a group that I was working with. And invariably what happens when you do that, and it will happen for your listeners probably when they next head into the bathroom, is probably around 60 to 770% of people who hear this podcast, when you hold the, the toothbrush in your hand, then you'll think about the, the dental floss, so you yeah. can thank me for that. I'll follow you into the bathroom. Uh, now, does it guarantee your floss? No, it doesn't because you have to want to change the behaviour. Yeah. So so if it, if this strategy isn't working, it's probably more about your intention than the fact that the strategy doesn't work because the strategy works. But it was interesting, a soldier came up to me at the end of the program, it was a six-week program, and he said, you know what, Joe? He said, I've thought about you every day in my bathroom for the last <laughs> six weeks, which I have to confess slightly filled me with a little bit of horror, but I kind of <laughs> kept a poker face while he was telling me. Um, and he said, "He said, but I haven't flossed once." <laughs> yeah. And I said, "Okay." I said, "Did you want to floss?" And he went, "No." Nah. And I said, "But <laughs> you know, what?" I said, "I made you think about it." Yeah. You know, and that's the aim of the strategy. So if you've got something that you want to start doing, and it might be when the alarm goes off, then I'll get up. Yeah. Or I've had people do it with their social media. When I get home, then I put my phone away on the charge. Yeah. I had some. I've had someone do that with smoking. That we're looking to do just to you know reduce. Joe can I, I want to reduce two cigarettes a day and we worked out that they were smoking two cigarettes on the way to work. So when I leave for work, then I put my bag in the boot yeah. because their cigarettes are in the mm. boot. So it, it guarantees and those first few car rides will be horrible because it's a habit. It's an association and cigarettes smoking is a, is a tricky one because there's the addictive component as well. But you have to know what, know what the new behavior is going to look like, but where you can piggyback it on something you're already doing. Say it to yourself, you know, when I when I have the toothbrush in my hand, then I'll reach for the dental floss or when I boil the kettle, then I'll have the multivitamins. And I've given some health-related examples there. I had a professional basketballer who used this to take extra shots after their game, after training, sorry. So he decided he wanted to improve his shooting percentage. So long story cut short, what he said is when the, when my car keys are in my hand, then I'll ask myself have I taken the extra shots. Yeah. Like because it. what was happening mm-hmm. is he was getting halfway home and going, oh, forgot. You know so so we flipped that around and he because it was important to him he was a professional basketball player shooting an extra hundred shots every practice session for a season that's a good thing to do so he instantly the forgetting part of it wasn't the reason that he wasn't doing it so it's uh, that sorry that was a very long answer no, I to love your it. question I love but it. I've
0: actually got a good health related one and I think it's relevant April is testicular cancer awareness month so mm-hmm. for those male listeners I did have testicular cancer it's the most common cancer between 16 and 30 the young man's cancer so using that when then planning, something we do every day. It's important. Check yourself. So for those male listeners, when I get into the shower, I will examine my balls. So next time you're in the shower, (laughs) get in the shower and then associate that with going, even if you do it this month or next couple of weeks examining your balls and feeling for saying so it's it's funny how you can use something like that for important health things you can use it for more smaller things or larger things in life but i think it's a really good strategy
1: um joe and a question from here is sort of would you have any advice for like a 16 year old self if you were to look back
2: my 16 year old self uh yeah uh, so what was i then i was great oh well same age as my son my eldest uh-huh. son is 16 yeah,
1: because of course you've learned so much with you know, not only life experience, but I'll say clinical experience Mm. um, and education. Um, Yeah. If you you were to sort of be able to talk to your 16 year old self, like some pointers you'd give.
2: Yeah. Well, I think a lot of the messages from positive psychology have really been reinforced to me through my life. So, and a few of these I've mentioned already. So the things that matter, people matter, work Mm. matters, you know, having, having something to, to do each day, and that's not necessarily going into paid employment because not everyone who's listening will be in paid employment, but having, you know, when I talk about work, I'm talking about something that you do that has um, has meaning for you because we also know that having purpose in life is, you know, I, I just think one of the things that's really helped me through my career is having a very clear sense each day when I'm going to do something about why I'm doing it. Mm. And you've tapped into that yeah. already in some of the discussions that the why for me is important because it provides the lens through which I do stuff. And some days I do stuff that's not that cool. Like today's a cool day I get to talk to you guys. <laughs> you know, some days I get stuff that's not quite so cool. And so on a day when it's, you know, the stuff isn't as much fun or it's a bit tedious or it's a bit administrative or whatever like that, which isn't kind of my go-to. I go, "Yeah, but why am I doing it?" Yeah. You know, and I can always find a reason and a purpose for it. So I think if I'd understood that earlier in my career, I think that would have been a good thing. I mean, it's something that I've I, I picked up on somewhere along the way. I don't even know when that was, but that that's been really useful for me. And I guess the life lesson I'm a big fan of mantras. So I have lots of mantras that I tell myself along the way that help me get through life. But the one that I think I wish I'd known at 16, which is when you are vulnerable, you know, aren't yeah, you? At absolutely. 16, you, you know, the whole world's gone pear-shaped on you. Your hormones are doing all sorts of stuff and you're trying to navigate the world and, and relationships and school and what you're going to do with your life and all that sort of stuff comes along. And I think the mantra that's really helped me is I always land on my feet. That's what I say to myself, particularly if I find myself in a prickly situation or somewhere where I don't want to be or I'm experiencing a challenge, or even in writing this book, you know, it was not all this is the best thing that I'm doing. It was It was a confronting process to do it because you're vulnerable, yeah. you know, and anytime you put yourself in a situation where you feel vulnerable, um, that's, whew, that's a deep breath yeah, moment, isn't it? Absolutely. So that mantra of, okay, right now this doesn't feel so good, but you know what, I always fall on my feet. Because most times in life, you know, well, I'm still here. So, you know, mm-hmm. most times in life things work out okay. So I kind of mm-hmm. tell myself that, you know, in some way, shape or form, you know, it, it's interesting with the book. Like no one's read it yet. But it'll come out and some people will love it. And I'm sure some people won't love Absolutely. it. Absolutely. You know what? And when people mm-hmm. don't love it, I've got to cope with that. You know, sure. but do you know what? I always fall on my feet. So so that would be if I was talking to 16-year-old Jo, I think I would I would hope that she would take that wisdom on board because it would have been easier sort of navigating earth science and some of those other subjects yeah, I was yeah, doing no. back when
1: I was 16. That's incredibly interesting. And um, being cognizant of time, you know, we could talk to you all day. Um, some incredible sort of stuff that's come up or things that I couldn't afford to talk about with an actual clinical psychologist. Um, <laughs> if, we, if I went into his office, I'd be, I'd be charged through the roof. <laughs> um, but just before before we head off, Joe, do you have sort of a plug for your book, like um, when it's coming out, where we can sort of get it and, and anything else you want to say about it?
2: Sure. Thank you. Thank you for that opportunity. I really appreciate that. So the book is coming out thirty first of May, um, so that's when it will be out on shelves. And um, I, from what I gather from the publicist, it'll be Amazon and all the usual places yep. that you can you can get it. But if anyone's interested in sort of getting in a bit earlier, getting an earlier copy and at a bit of a cheaper price as well, I've I've got a link on my website as well, so I might be able to pass that on to you guys.
0: And on that, actually, Joe is extremely kindly. Um, spoken to us offline and she said she will give us a separate link for our listeners, the 25 Stay Alive community. Uh, and that will be a separate link for you guys to order this book, which I'm certainly going to order a copy for myself. And part of those proceeds that um, Joe will get from the book will go to a charity that's close to William my heart, um, which is an amazing, amazing thing. So um, just for, yeah, for those listening out there, click the link that we'll definitely provide to our socials and pre-order the book. When it's out, we'll do another post. And then part of those proceeds from the book Will go directly to a charity that's close to close to our hearts. So thanks so much for that, Joe. Oh, that's Extremely my pleasure. Calm.
2: That's my pleasure.
0: So look, we will wrap things up there. But thanks again, everyone, for tuning into today's episode. Hopefully, you got something out of it, and hopefully, you're able to implement some of those uh, take-home strategies into your daily lives. And if you've got any questions at all, uh, please feel free to hit up Twenty Five Stay Alive on Instagram or Facebook, and we can then pass those on to Joe, uh, noting that she is now the Twenty Five Stay Alive resident psychologist. We'll uh, we'll try and collate some questions when we get them and we'll pass those on to Joe and then we'll we'll get them back to you guys whenever we can. So, uh, yeah, thanks again, everyone. And thank you so much, Joe. We cannot wait to get you back on the show. Thank you. You've been listening to the 25 Stay Alive podcast. Subscribe on iTunes or Spotify to get fresh new weekly episodes. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 25 Stay Alive. And feel free to send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.